The opinions expressed on this podcast are those of Darren Coleman and Elena Hansen and are for general information purposes only. It does not constitute any legally binding engagement between the podcasters and anyone else. Always check with your advisors to obtain your tax and your investment advice. Welcome to Two-Way Traffic with Darren Coleman and Elena Hansen, the cross-border podcast series. On each episode, we aim to guide you through the complexities, complications, implications, and advantages of having money and family on both sides of the border. Today, Elena and Darren talk about the less than sunny side of being a Canadian who spends the winter months south of the border. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Two-Way Traffic. My name is Darren Coleman. I'm a Senior Vice President, Portfolio Manager, and Financial Planner with Raymond James in Toronto, and we specialize in cross-border wealth management, working with people of money and family on both sides of the border. And today, I am again joined by... Elena Hansen, Owner and Managing Director of Hansen Cross-Border Tax, an independent accounting and tax company out of Oakville, Ontario. We're dealing with clients who have dual uh, tax reporting and tax obligations. Okay, Elena, thanks for joining me again today. We have a very Canadian topic and very apropos because we're recording this in the wintertime in Oakville, Ontario, and there is snow on the ground. Uh, and neither you nor I are a snowbird right now. So this no, we're is, not. No, we're not. Not yet. Maybe one day. Uh, but it's very common that uh, many Canadians decide uh, they're done shoveling snow and they go down to Arizona, Florida, somewhere warm and uh, spend the winter months down there being very comfortable and getting suntans. So shame on them, but that's what they like to do. So we encounter this situation very, very frequently. So the, the border also, again, with snowbirds, introduces some other complications that are different than people who've moved permanently or, or semi-permanently in either country. So for people that are down in the United States, resident for a few months of the year, they do often trip over some complications that they may not even know apply to them. So one of the first things I thought we would chat about is, when does the U.S. tax situation actually begin affecting a Canadian? Because many, I think, go down for a month or two. They think they're just visiting, so they don't have to deal with U.S. taxes at all. But that isn't always true, depending on how long they stay, right? That's right. Depending on uh, you know how long they spent uh, their time on the U.S. soil in a calendar year, over three years. Uh, so basically what's happening during that, uh, as a Canadian, by virtue of having a Canadian passport, you have a B2 visa, which allows you to be in the States up to six months from the day of entry. So you can stay for six months on the current visa, not a problem. Not a problem, good, right? that's but. right. But from the tax perspective, you know, you may be considered a U.S. resident under substantial presence test. If you spend in the U.S., more than 121 days on an annual basis. So you can stay for six months, right, under the immigration rules. Correct. But if you stay for more than 120 days, 121 days, days, you're going to now maybe have some U.S. tax consequences for being there. That is right. So basically, if you're staying annually between over 121 days and under 183 days, you may be subject to reporting on Form 8840 what is known as a closer connection exception. Right, and this isn't in a row, by the way. You have to calculate all the days 
you're there throughout the year, right? It's not in a row. No, it's not in a row. It's on a calendar year yeah. basis. And a fraction of a day is counted as a full day. Right. So if I'm transiting through the U.S. or I just go over and come back for lunch, I go to Niagara Falls, I see the falls, I check out their side, I come back. That's a day. That's a day. And who keeps track of that? Well, it's your obligation as a taxpayer because both U.S. and Canadian tax system are self-reporting. That's right. But every time you cross the border, your passport or your Nexus card is taken. So somebody is counting, right? They're doing a better job now than before. Now, what's also, you mentioned a formula over three years. So most people, I think, that are aware of this issue think it's on a calendar year only basis, but there is a provision of, of looking at over a three-year period. Is that right? Yeah, there's a convoluted formula. You know, you need to count 100% of current year days for as long as you spend more than 31 days in the current year, one-third of the uh, prior year and one-sixth of the second prior year, right? So in, in aggregate, once you lump those days together, if you're over 182 days, then you're considered U.S. tax resident uh, under the substantial presence test. Right. So someone may have been going for 119 days mm -hmm. thinking I'm under the radar, I don't have to deal with you. Surprise, maybe you do now. Well, 119, no. That won't trigger it? Okay. That won't trigger it. So, but if so, I'm there one year for 150, another year for 40, like if I could oh, wind may, up doing it, right? That's right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you need to count, and you always count from, from the current year position backwards. I right? see. Okay. So, this is interesting because we often see people that they've decided to become a, a, a snowbird. They buy a property or they Airbnb a property, and this is the first year or two years they're doing it. And they may not even have this on their radar that they do need to keep track of when they go and when they come back, right? That, that's right. So you need to keep track. And if you do meet the test, you need to file that form. Because by virtue of not completing and submitting that form, you are now U.S. tax resident. So <laughs> then you have other... Uh, reporting obligations and now tax obligations. Right, and then you'd mentioned in a previous talk that about there's a difference between worldwide reporting and worldwide taxation. So that what's the difference between those? Because they sound the same. <laughs> right, right. But they're not the same. Then they're not the same because uh, let's give you an example. Uh, let's say you you manage to overstay 182 grace period in the current year, right? Okay. So which means that you're not uh, no longer eligible for a closer connection exception. Okay. And filing this form 8840. But again, if your primary ties, uh, uh, you have stronger ties to Canada as opposed to the U.S., you would be eligible to file a treaty protection. So under Canada-U.S. Tax Treaty, Article 4, uh, you will be treated as a Canadian tax resident as opposed to U.S. tax resident. Okay. And by doing so, uh, you, you are not going to be uh, taxed by the U.S. on your worldwide basis. You're only going to be taxed by the U.S. on the U.S. source income if you do have any U.S. source income. Okay. Article 4 helps you to protect from worldwide taxation on the U.S. side but it doesn't help you to, to be protected from the uh, worldwide reporting on the U.S. side. Uh -huh. So even though there might not be taxes due, mm -hmm. you still have to go you through the to, paperwork and file a return. You have to do paperwork as if you're U.S., Wow. Citizen. Okay. okay, so that's the difference. You still have to report even difference. if there's no taxes. Yeah. You still and have and to the do reporting it. just can be so onerous because, yeah. you know, you would have to disclose your Canadian bank and financial accounts. Or if you're owner of a Canadian corporation, you will have to file an equivalent uh, of your T2 return as part of your uh, U.S. non resident return. And, you know, and the list just goes on and on and on. Right. And this is a surprise to people. Even though there's no taxes on, oh, you they, still have to yeah. do all this work. They argue with you, you know. They, I bet they, they do. Because <laughs> uh, they've got to deal, like, you guys have to. To go through all the compliance, all the paperwork. You've got to send them a bill that isn't $5. No, it's not. 
and that surprises people. Okay, so business owners can be subject to all these other issues. People just going down and enjoying their vacations can have these things. One big issue that we encounter also is clients when they buy property. So we've got the issue of how long they stay, but even if they don't hit that issue, they often hit another one when they buy their property. So they bought the condo in Arizona, they bought the condo in Florida, they may have bought it in their personal name. One thing we tend to see is they'll be sitting by the pool, they'll be chatting with that lovely family from Michigan who also comes down to escape their weather. They get in a conversation and they, they share that, you know, they do rent the place out to friends or they put it on Airbnb for a few times a year. And the American person says, are you crazy? You own that in your own name and you're renting it out. You gotta go and get an LLC, you need to put that thing in a corporation because otherwise you're exposing yourself to all this risk, extra taxes. So then they march over to the lawyer that's in town and they get one of those set up for them. And then they discover a year or two later when they talk to someone like you, Elena, what did they just do? Because this works great for Americans when they buy second properties. What happens when the Canadian puts their condo inside a corporation like their American friends do? What happens to them? Well, they certainly did a major uh, disfavor to themselves, you know, by listening to their buddies by the pool. But, um, you know, there's a various formats how you can uh, own U.S. Uh, property, you know, particular real estate. You can hold it jointly. There's a few ways. Uh, you can hold it personally. You can hold it jointly. There's uh, several ways of joint ownership. You can hold it through a trust, uh, through a corporation. It can be U.S. domestic corporation. It can be Canadian corporation, you can hold it through a partnership, you can hold right. it through a chain of corporations. So you need Lots to step back, you need to step back and take this uh, fair picture and say, what is my intent? Yes. Why I'm doing this? Right. Uh, what is the value of the property? Mm -hmm. uh, because if your property is a you know forty dollar condo, uh, you probably don't need to go. This is town. too complicated. <laughs> too complicated, yeah. right? But if you're dealing with ten million dollar property, then you may want to protect yourself a bit better. Yeah. Than or even a million dollar property, right? Well, that, that's, that, right. That, that's right. This does get into some some, some wealth for many many people, yeah. right? And it's an important asset in their plan. That's that's right because you know many people wanna wanna do structuring because they want to avoid U.S. estate tax, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yes. U.S. estate tax is very punitive because it's imposed on market value of your ownership, like anything you own on the day of death. Right. Versus in Canada, as you know, it's a deemed disposition tax. Yeah, you, they, they treat it as if you sold everything the day before you died. That, that is correct. So so therefore, people want to go through a structuring uh, route in order to protect themselves from the estate tax uh, in the U.S. But by creating a U.S. corporation, now they have this, you know, U.S.-based uh, asset. Right. So the, the objective is not, is not attained right. by, right. by, by doing this. But this also Canada might, so on that topic, the the Americans may look at it as a corporation, but Canada doesn't perceive it as such. So they wind up paying way more tax on any income they earn than they ever thought they would pay. Th right? Th that's right, because again, when it comes to these uh, fancy structures, uh, you know, like a particular LLC, um, there's a, there's a mismatch. In the states, it can be a disregarded entity, which is a flow through, as if you hold it directly, or it can be treated as a partnership or corporation if you make a certain election. On the Canadian side, it's always considered a corporation. Right. So what's happening is, uh, you know, when you generate income, now that income is taxed in different hands. Mm -hmm. So it's taxed individually on the U.S. side and corporately on the can in Canada. So you create this mismatch now in tax credits. Right, right? exactly. So in the U.S., the person pays the taxes there. They get a tax credit. But in Canada, it's the corporation that gets it, not the individual. Right. So we do encounter this. People rent it out and discover they're paying like 70 plus percent yeah, tax yeah. rates. Mm -hmm 
on the income because they structured it mm -hmm, wrong. Mm -hmm. um, you also, moving away from that a little bit, you talked about title. So one thing we also see people wanting to do is they get very worried about the estate tax, although the exemption is over $11 million. So you have to have a pretty sizable net worth. Right, although that, that could change. That they could can bring change, that back right? Down. Because it's, it's, it's subject to sunset after 2025. Right. So we'll see whatever the next yeah. uh, governments do. That's they right. could bring that down. So it may not affect people now, but it might in the future. So they still have to be aware of that. But we also sometimes see people deciding, well, I'll put my kids kids on right. for title on the property and that'll avoid that right is that right. a good idea oh it's a terrible idea you know uh it's a terrible idea well, to... it depends on the kids right but all the kids are trouble <laughs> well yes yes that's that's the premise uh but you know it's a terrible idea to do it um from the get-go and it's all it's even worse to bring them as the time goes by because by sharing the title by bringing someone else on the title you're effectively now uh making a gift and the u.s so, has these things called gift tax gift tax that's right uh, from the canadian perspective you are actually subject now to deem disposition for that uh, for mm. the value of, of, of the gift. So Canada would say you've sold part the, of a it, portion, that's and that right. could be taxable. The Americans that's have right. a gift tax, which Canada doesn't have, that so is, that's another form that of tax. That is correct. And, and the trouble with the gift tax that because Canada doesn't have it and it's not tax on income, you cannot credit it. Right. So the tax so you pay in the US, now. which normally you could say I'll, that'll counter my tax in Canada, doesn't apply because they're different taxes. This is fun. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. So and again, very often we we see it after the fact. There's uh, there's no way to 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 undo it. No. No, there isn't. And it's and we often see these things because people will go and see a tax or a legal practitioner that might be very familiar with the rules of one country, mm -hmm. but don't really appreciate how those rules affect the person when they live in the other country. Right. We right. do see these things quite a lot when people get good advice from the wrong person in the wrong application. Uh, so having someone that knows how to do both sides is critical. While we're on the topic of acquiring the property, title and how they own it is one issue. But often people have to finance the purchases. Not most, many of us don't have, you know, the amount of money in our pockets to buy this in cash. So we do have to find a way to finance some of these things. So what are some of the issues that you see come up when people are trying to buy the property through a mortgage line of credit? What are some of the issues that come about from that? Well, you know, as Canadians, uh, it's uh, virtually impossible to obtain a mortgage in the States. Right. Because so you don't exist. Our two, this often surprises people that our banking systems, you're an alien. You may as well have arrived from Mars. You, they don't really access your credit bureaus. That's uh, right. So now there are some banks that are getting better at doing some of this, transferring information back and forth. But yeah, they usually can't obtain financing in the other country. Right. So in, in this instances, we're contacting someone like you, dear, and, and, and asking to help out the clients. Uh, what would you suggest? What do you guys typically recommend on, on the financial side? So in most cases, when we have people that are looking to buy a property, the simplest and cleanest thing to do is to use their own domestic financing arrangements to structure it. Because when we go and want to engage with a U.S. financial institution, it's very, very difficult. Because the American financial institution doesn't know who you are. You don't have a credit file with them. They don't seem to know how to get recourse back to the property. So the simplest and cleanest way in the vast majority of cases is for the person to use their existing resources. So we often encourage them, if they don't have one, get a line of credit on your property, which is a good financial planning tactic anyway, because the banks will loan you money when you don't need it, and they won't loan it to you when you do. So if there's an emergency, the roof fell in, somebody needs bail, I don't know what it is, but the moment you have a problem and need money, that's the when the banks won't give it to you or are going to apply for it. it's a problem. So we usually recommend that people have that uh, lending facility, that credit facility in place. So you buy an umbrella when it's sunny, you don't wait for it to Excellent. rain. So when they have access to that uh, line of credit often, and you can negotiate better terms, right? So if you're a good customer of the bank, you have good net worth, good income, good financial health, you can negotiate a very 
comfortable interest rate. And that you can then use to acquire the property in the destination that you're choosing. And often from their perspective, you may appear as a cash buyer because you're not having to go through their financing arrangements. So you can often get better uh, leverage in your negotiations. So we, we usually walk people through that process and we make sure all their stuff is set up so that they have the lowest cost in terms of financing, the most comfortable style of financing, and also they have the best ability to negotiate for the lowest price. So, But having people have all that stuff figured out well in advance is absolutely important. Don't wait for the last minute. One thing that we also see that comes up that sometimes people aren't aware of is how they can engage with their Canadian investment and retirement accounts when they're in the United States. This often surprises people. So um, depending on the jurisdiction where they're residing will dictate the degree to which their Canadian financial institution can engage with them. So in most cases, the Canadian financial institution has an exemption so they can deal with people who are temporarily resident in the US, but not every state is the same. So uh, there are three different models uh, that the U.S. states have for exemption from the requirement for the Canadian advisor, Canadian firm to be registered. Because normally you have to be registered where the client is residing, even temporarily. So Florida is okay, but not every state is like Florida. And that's only for retirement accounts. So if somebody's in Florida and they want to do a transaction in their RSP or their RIF account, they can have a dialogue with their financial institution and that's fine. But their regular investment account, different rules because that does not have the exemption from registration. So That's if they're gonna have, and very few advisors are even mm -hmm. aware of this. So if they wanna have a talk about, I'd like to buy TD Bank and sell Royal Bank, that's fine. But if it's their investment account and they wanna do that, they're not actually allowed. The investment firm in Canada is, is really gonna take that instruction at their peril. They're not supposed to do that because mm -hmm. they don't have an exemption for registration in the state where the person is. Um, but even the fact that the retirement accounts have this exemption, what we're finding now is some Canadian financial institutions, they don't want to be bothered with this because they don't want to be held to know sure, what's sure. the difference in the rule between New Hampshire and Maine and Arizona and Texas and Utah and Florida because they are different. And so we're finding some Canadian financial institutions are just having a bit of a blanket saying no. Wow. If you're in the U.S., I can imagine we don't want to deal with this. We're going to shut your account or please move it somewhere else. And that's surprising people who may have had longstanding relationships. Right and discovering that the compliance department of the bank is saying, or the investment firm is going, no, we're not gonna do with it. Is it something recent, Iran? Well, what's happening is this web of compliance is tightening, Okay. right? And, and as people are finding out one little mistake may happen and it becomes an issue for the firm and they wind up having to pay out somebody because, oops, you weren't supposed to have done that, they wanna make it all better. The banks are now saying, you know what? This is a risk exposure we no longer want to have. So if someone is in that situation in the US, it's really important that they know what their rights are, what they can and can't do, what accounts they can talk about, not talk about, and also be prepared that your financial institution may change their policy on right. you. So even though the rules may be okay, they may decide we're not doing sure. this. And we've seen that. We've had people come to us and we examine it and say, well, actually the financial institution's on side. They don't have to kick you out, but the firm has decided they don't want to take the risk of knowing what the rules are in the United States. They're just saying, oh, please go somewhere else. So that's interesting. Wow. So we're happy to know that because we do have to stay sure. on top. Sure. Uh, and we are licensed in, uh, I believe we're in 42 states as advisors. So we often are able to get around some of these issues. Mm -hmm. um, but we also have to know what they all are and which state matters and, and what the rules are in each place. Uh, but not many people 
want to be bothered knowing all those things. Right, right. right. So it is a patchwork of issues for people. Yeah, I, I guess for taxpayers, that will be catch-22, right? Because as non-residents, they cannot have brokerage accounts in the States. Right. And then uh, as Canadian residents, you know, being away from Canada, they cannot, you know, the advisor cannot manage That's right. The, so, so what we found, actually, is some people have said, oh, well, if I can't communicate with my advisor in Hamilton, or Oakville or Nanaimo while I'm in the US. Well, what I'll do is I have an address in Florida or I have an address in Arizona. I can go to my local investment firm. I'll go to Morgan Stanley or Merrill Lynch or somebody and I'll open an account with them. And sometimes they do only to discover later, later on that the investment firm can't do business with them because they're only temporarily in the US or they have it and they pass away and the family is then trying to deal with oh, yeah, an that, account that the person was supposed to have. Imagine. So. Yeah, so uh, we have a good joke that these things get tangly, yeah, which they, is a word yes. my friend from Newfoundland gave me. Um, and we often, sometimes, unfortunately, people create these situations and nobody knows it was a problem until someone is sick or someone's passed right, away. Right, right, right. So getting advice on these things from people that know where the issues are and how to resolve them, like you and like me, is really important. So, so the tax issues are big, the, the reporting issues are big, and sometimes people fall into a bit of a hole in terms of not knowing that a problem until somebody's gone, which leads to a story that I wanted you to share, which <laughs> was about um, what when people pass away in the United right. States and all these things come to bear, it gets really complicated. And you were telling me a story of how someone had an innovative way of avoiding all of these complications of passing away in the United States and being subject to all these U.S. issues. So tell, please share that one. Well, you know, it's it's pretty tragic. I mean, it's, um, yeah, one of my clients, her son, is a funeral director. And uh, he said one, one morning uh, uh, a trailer pulled over and a lady, you know, stepped out and said, I need help. Uh, and uh, apparently her husband uh, passed away while they were vacationing at their Florida home. And uh, she really didn't know what to do. You know, I mean, what do you do? when you have a corpse on your hand right. in a foreign land. I would call the police, but she had a different idea, yes, right? right? She's very creative, this lady. Well, uh, yeah, so she, she basically decided to return home to Canada, and he was uh, in the uh, trailer. The back of the and, trailer. Uh, yeah, he was in the back of the trailer. So she bundled him up, or he passed away in there, and she just decided yeah, to come know, across? I, I guess it was a miracle that uh, the trailer was not properly searched, and uh, she was able to pass through. She'd have really had some explaining to do with, you know, what's with him in the back. <laughs> It's, uh, it's 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 certainly a very colorful story. So we, that's what we don't recommend that particular. No, plan, we, do don't. we? We don't no, we don't. No, we don't. But but again, it shows you the complexities when you decide to split your time, split your life between you know your home in in Canada and the vacation property in in Florida. You kind of can foresee those obstacles can be right. I mean, you certainly need to watch all your health and health insurance, especially yeah. now. So that, actually, why don't we talk about right. that? There's some of the mistakes that people make quite often as snowbirds, and one of them is they don't know what their health coverage is or that's what right. they should have. That's a big one because the systems are very different. So they need to know healthcare options and what that coverage they have is and what applies and what doesn't apply. I, I have actually, I have another story for you. I have yeah. one of the clients who has, uh, you know, congenital uh, problem mm -hmm. and he spent significant time in the States. Uh, he's actually a citizen and uh, under his coverage, he was actually eligible to call in for a private helicopter service wow. for medical purposes. And he did take advantage of that. Just to so get back to just the Canadian Just to get side. back to, and, and get, get serviced in Canada. Wow. Because in the U.S. he wouldn't have insurance in many no, cases because that right. doesn't qualify he's or he's a pre-existing right. condition or something right. like that. That's right. Okay, so that's good. So if you don't have health coverage, have helicopter coverage. That's an interesting <laughs> one. I'll have to write that one down. Uh, so that's an issue is healthcare coverage is one. And knowing how many days you're there or not there is a, is a mistake they make. Mm -hmm. They're not counting. 
Um, they're not buying their property in the right format. They're not having reporting. A they're they're not, not reporting. reporting their time. Mm -hmm. They're not reporting their time. They're not buying properties correctly. They're not knowing their banking and their investment instructions. And maybe they're not calling the police when they got the guy in the trailer. That's another mistake. <laughs> well, I don't know whether it's uh, you know it's 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 a right thing or wrong thing that they didn't call the police. But everything worked out uh, well for for that lady, right? And uh, we hope right. so. We hope so. <laughs> right. I mean, other so. than losing. We don't know how he died. So that's a whole other episode. Well, you know, the the, the client was uh, yeah, did not disclose me those details. But, uh... Okay, I, we're going to cap it there. There is so much to talk about, but I think we kind of hit the highlights for, for Snowbird, which is terrific. Um, so we have a number of other podcasts coming up, so please stay tuned. Thank you, listeners, for staying with us to the end. Elena, thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you, Darren, for interviewing me today, as always. Terrific. Okay, and we'll be back to you on our next one. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. This has been Two-Way Traffic with Darren Coleman and Elena Hansen. This cross-border podcast series is a production of the Acme Podcasting Company.